You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview with the Irish Times. This week, we're discussing the challenge posed to China by the pro-democracy uprising in Hong Kong, Barack Obama's strategy in Syria and Iraq, does he have one, and the rather exciting state of British politics. I'm Chris Dooley, standing in this week for Dennis Staunton. First, to Hong Kong. Tens of thousands of protesters remain on the streets of Hong Kong in pursuit of their demand to be allowed a free vote in the election of its next chief executive in 2017. The stakes could not be much higher. The demonstrations are seen as the biggest challenge to the authority of the Beijing government in 25 years. I'm joined now by Clifford Coonan, our Asia correspondent, who is in Hong Kong. Clifford, first, can you bring us up to date on the protests there? Is there any sign of them dissipating or are people still on the streets in very large numbers? Uh, the people are still on the streets in large numbers, uh, probably less than there were over a, a couple of days ago. Um, and we had a thunderstorm here this evening, which um, also um, thinned out the numbers a little bit. But there's still still a lot of people on the streets. And um, there are more and more gathering now um, ahead of tomorrow, which is the National Day holiday, uh, the, the, which marks the anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party's um, accession to power in 1949. And as we know, Clifford, the, the protests intensified after Sunday when police used tear gas to, to try to clear the streets. Since then, the authorities have, have stepped back and allow the demonstrations to continue peacefully. Is that situation still holding? And that situation is, yeah. They're, basically, they're, they're keeping a lower profile than they were. Um, also, the protests are more, um, it's more people sitting around now and, um, you know, um, taking up space rather than around the government buildings um, rather than actively sort of demonstrating. So um, both sides have kind of stepped back a little bit, but it's still, um, it's still very tense and there's still um, a lot of concerns about what's going to happen tomorrow on the National Day holiday and also, um, you know, where things go from here. Um, today, uh, CY Leung, uh, the chief executive, asked them to, to ask the demonstrators to, to step down and saying that... Um, Saying that it was uh, had gotten out of control, and that it's time for them to you know to to do their duty to Hong Kong society and to stop their campaign. And how widespread is the support for the protest effort in Hong Kong? Are are, um, are, are there uh, dissenting voices? Um, there is. It's amazing how um, one, one thing I found is that um, well, obviously the students are the are the hardcore of of support uh, among the demonstrators, but. It's really, it's really coming from across society. People have had a certain, have always had their reservations about being run by Beijing since 1997, when, when Hong Kong was handed back uh, to uh, from Britain, by Britain, and uh, so what you're seeing is um, a lot of people saying, well, this is our opportunity to voice our concerns about being run by Beijing, which uh, they don't feel uh, that their rights will be guaranteed. Um, particularly, um, obviously, um, about voting, but also about things like press freedom and, and other freedoms. They, they want to make sure that, um, that Hong Kong will continue to enjoy a, a high degree of autonomy. So I think, I think you're seeing quite widespread support for the, for the, uh, for the protests. At the same time, um, Hong Kong is about making money and Hong Kong is a financial hub and people buy into that. So um, I think people are wary of doing anything that could threaten the overall um, stability of, of Hong Kong. So that might be the deciding factor. Okay. And who's actually in char- charge, Clifford? Can you, can you give us a picture of um, 
who's organised the protests and is, is anybody actually in charge of them now? Is it the, the students or is it this Occupy Central group? Maybe you could tell us a bit about them. Well, Occupy Central, um, which were, which is, uh, they're basically the, the main group coordinating us. They were co-founded, their co-founder, Chan Kin Man, um, was speaking today and he was saying that uh, he's calling for, for CY Lung, the chief executive, to resign over this. Um, you have uh, Scholarism, which is this uh, group of students, very young students, some of them um, secondary school students. They're also involved. Um, their leader, Josh Wong, who's 17, was, was, was arrested and held for 40 hours, um, and he's been seen as a, as a, as a hero of the movement. Um, and, and then you have these student organizations uh, from within the universities as well. So um, it's, it's, uh, there's no single figure. It's actually in some ways similar to the 1989 uh, student movement in, in, in Beijing, in Tiananmen, which um, obviously ended with the uh, crackdown on Tiananmen Square in, on June 4th. Uh, in terms, of, But it's similar in that they have um, the, the leaders are, are kind of a, a mixture of, um, of different kinds of student groups and, um, and dissenting factions. And uh, I mean, th- I think they have. It's fair to say they have a. Um, they have the same goal by and large. But would there be agreement among them as to how long they should keep the protests up? There have been some suggestions, I think, by some leaders that they might want to call this off after after the the first of October. Is there any clear picture emerging in that's in, in that um, context? Yeah, I think I think this is always the problem. Is is how far to uh, or the issue is how far to take it and and where it's going to go and. Um, you know, after the initial sort of euphoria of the weekend with the tear gas and um, and that kind of thing, uh, there's a certain amount of um, now there's a certain they have to sort of think, well, what are we going to do with this this uh, momentum? And and it's hard to maintain momentum, um, particularly now that the, the you know the police, as we said, have, have stepped back a bit. Um, and um, so it's going to be that'll be the next question. Probably it'll be interesting to see what happens tomorrow with the with the um, no, the uh, National Day holiday, um, and then see if uh, if there's renewed protests. But ultimately, this has to come down to dialogue and, and finding some way uh, to um, to to ensure that uh, Hong Kong is going to be allowed to have its uh, its voting access or, or better um, better voting rights than than it currently does. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see then what Beijing has to say about this. They've, they've also been outspoken saying that, that this can't go on. Um, so it's going to be a question of how these three, these three groups, the Hong Kong government, the students and, the, and Beijing, how they all find a, some sort of common ground in which to find a compromise. And, and uh, uh, as you, men- you mentioned Beijing, Clifford, you're, of course, you're based in Beijing. You're, you're, you're very familiar with the workings of the, the Chinese government. Um, this is probably the biggest challenge to its authority since Tiananmen Square in 1989. So... How long do you think Beijing, uh, the government there, would tolerate protests on this scale? And is there any indication of when it might be might intervene and how? Of course, in 1989, the, the, there was a very severe crackdown, violent crackdown on protesters on, on that occasion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, well, there's no indication because the the Chinese government are very they're very slow to give any kind of uh, any information on this. But we're sort of trying to read between the lines, and the indications are that. Um, that they want the Hong Kong government to handle this. They don't want this to become an issue for Beijing. Uh, the People's Liberation Army do have a, a presence here in Hong Kong, but it keeps itself very low-key. And if, if the PLA do come out onto the streets in Hong Kong, everything will escalate because that will be the most powerful symbol yet that, um, that, that 
Beijing is is keen to put a stamp on of authority on on the territory. So I think it's going to be more likely that that um, any solution will will be uh, will have to come from from the Hong Kong government. And then it becomes a question whether Xi Jinping has got the um, has got the wherewithal to actually come up with a deal and and some kind of um, and some kind of compromise. Um, and if if it looks like he's not able to to stop this and and to to keep uh, to keep the Occupy Central movement under control and 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 to free up the the financial center here in Hong Kong, well then I think it, it's possible that the the Chinese will be forced to act. And if that's the if that's the People's Liberation Army on the streets of Hong Kong. Well, that's, a, that's another dimension entirely. Right. And finally, Clifford, just on the issue at hand, the, there is agreement, I think, that there will be an election in 2017 to, to elect the next chief executive of Hong Kong. But the, what's in dispute here is the protesters want uh, the right to, a, to a, a free vote is where Beijing wants to handpick the, the candidates, not just wants to, and says it will handpick the candidates. Um, and that's mm-hmm. what's in dispute. The, the government in Beijing, they can hardly back down um, having taken that stand, can they? No, it's a very difficult. They're in a very difficult position now because they've issued this white paper um, saying that, as you say, that that they will they that there will be universal suffrage um, in 2017, but um, it'll, you can only vote for the candidates that we approve, and and that's uh, that's obviously very difficult because you, can, you know there's no no way there's going to be democracy advocates in there. Um, at the same time, while it is a conundrum, it's also a possibility that um, this is an area where there could be. Um, this is where they could find some kind of compromise because um, if if you know the Democrats feel that the Democratic camp feel that they're going to have more input into into helping choose the candidates, or if um, if um, there is a bit of leeway on the on on the definition of of what what, what an approved candidate is, possibly. So um, so it just becomes a question now to see um, how how much leeway there is there and if they can. If they can come up with an agreement on on maybe um, you know ruling out extremist candidates, but at the same time allowing for um, for um, you know candidates that are acceptable both to Democrats and to Beijing. Okay, well we're in for a very interesting forty-eight hours, I think. So uh, um, good to have you there in Hong Kong, uh, Clifford Coonan. Thank you. You're listening to Worldview with the Irish Times. It's political conference season in Britain and this week it's the turn of the Conservative Party which has gathered its troops in Birmingham for their last big get-together before next year's general election. Mark Hennessy, our London editor, is there and joins me now. Mark, it's been a difficult week in many ways for the Tories not least with the defection of another MP, Mark Reckless, following the footsteps of Douglas Carswell to the UK Independence Party and yet the mood there is, is pretty upbeat, is it not? Yes, it, it has. It certainly improved as the week went on. Uh, when they arrived here on Saturday, there's no doubt, certainly on Saturday afternoon after UKIP unveiled uh, Mark Reckless as their latest recruit, that people were very jittery for some hours. But what has happened since has been quite striking. The Conservatives have really gone for Reckless uh, in a pretty vicious way, making it clear that, uh, or alleging, that he had lied to his constituencies, uh, to his constituents, and that he had lied uh, to uh, fellow party members about his future intentions when he was asked previously whether he would join UKIP or not. So they've given a, basically a warning to their own people that anybody who seeks to depart now will be tackled uh, in, in a very formal fashion. And that confidence is being partly explained by the fact that it's very, the reckless case is a very diff- different one to Douglas Carswell. 
the MP for Clacton in Essex who quit some time ago, and his by-election is coming up in a few days' time. There, uh, uh, Carswell has a very strong personal following, and barring absolute miracles, will be re-elected. Reckless is in a much weaker position. He has a 10,000 uh, majority over Labour in his constituency in Kent. He doesn't have a strong uh, personal following. The few of the local Conservative Association has gone with him, and Tories believe that they can take him out in a by-election. And even in a worst-case scenario, uh, David Davis, for instance, the senior Conservative MP, is making the point that even if the Tories were to lose the seat to Labour, that it wouldn't absolutely be a disaster for the Conservatives because they would be able to use that as living proof to Conservative uh, voters and wavering Conservative voters in May of next year's general election that if you vote for UKIP, what you'll get is actually a Labour candidate. And you say, Mark, though, uh, the the Conservatives are sort of on a are they on a more confident footing than Labour? You were in, you were in Manchester last week for the Labour Party conference. Yes. How do the mood of the two parties compare? The contrast is it is uh, it is a very stark contrast. I mean, Labour, you know, it's their last conference. They're nine months away from a general election campaign. They're five to six points ahead in the polls, depending which poll you read. And yet, the mood was incredibly flat. Uh, people there very worried about the future, worried about the threat from UKIP in North of England constituencies, worried about the public uh, lack of warmth uh, that uh, voters feel towards uh, their party leader. Uh, Ed Miliband fears that if they get into an election campaign where they are running relatively neck and neck with the Conservatives, that what will happen during the lifetime of a three-week campaign is that it will become increasingly presidential. It will be Cameron v Miliband, and that in that contest, voters will choose Cameron. Now, that is in some ways the the reverse of what you see in uh, Tory in, in the Conservative conference. They have their Conservatives never particularly warm to their leader. They see him as not being as conservative as they are. Uh, certainly, there's a residue of uh, irritation, anger over his uh, forward his uh, um, handling of the gay marriage issue. He push that through. Many of the Tory grassroots didn't like it. Many of them left uh, to join UKIP. And yet they accept that he is a plus to their brand. Now, it's not loyalty. It will disappear very, very quickly if he fails to deliver. But as of now, uh, the Conservatives believe that they are in better shape than perhaps many people on the outside would uh, would would think the odd thing about it at many of the events that have been taking place here in Manchester is that they are already talking in very terms about the European Union referendum that Cameron has have promised for 2017, and yet they don't seem to be paying quite the same level of attention to actually winning seats in places where they need to in 2015. Uh, you certainly saw people from the north of England making the point that they are backing away in constituencies and they're trying to do the, the right thing and uh, behaving as very active councillors on the ground, and yet they feel they're getting absolutely no support from a Conservative central office. And uh, they feel almost as if they are crying in the wind and that the Tories are, are actually looking 
looking at their heartland in the south of England, and the south of England is fine. It will always deliver substantial numbers of seats for the, the, the Tories, but it's never going to deliver them a majority. And Mark, you mentioned there David Cameron facing down the, the right-wing elements in his party and in his support for same-sex marriage. Is Cameron showing more um, electoral sort of nous than, than Miliband in the sense that elections really are won in the centre ground, aren't they? And he, he, he does seem to um, have the, the ability to, to, to pull his party back towards the centre when, um, when, when they want to go to the right. Or is that, is that fair? Whereas, whereas Miliband, he, 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 he is seen maybe to be taking Labour in a, in a left direction, which appeals to Labour grassroots support, but maybe not so much to, uh, yeah. certain, to, to the voters in, in, the, in the middle ground. Yeah, well, yes, I think certainly in the Labour case, that's absolutely the case, that there's no doubt that under Labour, uh, policies have gone leftward, or at least the perception has been that the policies have gone left, leftward. And uh, Miliband has talked a lot about predatory capitalism and everything else. Now, you will find many people in the Conservatives who, see, who believe that Cameron fairly cynically picked on the issue of gay marriage, that he thought it was his Clause 4 moment. Uh, you remember where Tony Blair... Uh, uh, got rid of Clause 4, which talked about the, the national ownership of major uh, 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 public assets, uh, and that defined him ever after with uh, the British public as being somebody who thought outside the traditional box. In turn, uh, the, the people in the Conservatives will, will argue that Cameron did exactly the same with gay marriage, that it was something that a Tory Prime Minister would never have been expected to do, and therefore there was political capital to be gained by doing it. Now, there are many others in in the Conservatives who will say, no, that's not an accurate reflection of the Prime Minister's feelings, that it was actually quite genuine and that he saw it as being a grave social injustice and he thought he had a role uh, to, 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 to deal with it and to move the Conservatives and indeed British society into the 21st century. And obviously, you know, there'll be no final uh, decision on that. Uh, in any way, it will always remain a subject of argument as to what his motivation was. By contrast, he hasn't managed to keep the Conservatives in the centre ground on the issue of Europe. He has ended up in a position where, for instance, he has argued now for a European referendum pledge that he will hold one in 2017 if he is re-elected. When he was elected as Tory leader in 2005, he made it clear that the Tories had to stop, as he said then, to stop banging on about Europe. And that they were people who were being seen by the voters at large as being obsessive on the subject. But because of the very strong sense within the Conservative Party that they want a referendum, that they want, many of them want to get out of Europe, he's ended up in a position now where he never thought it would have been three or four years ago. Okay. And finally, Mark, and briefly, I suppose there is one party that would be trying to hold the centre ground, which is the Liberal Democrat Party. They're having their conference next week. Um, had they asked um, anybody in Ireland for advice before they went into coalition, we could have told them that the junior coalition partner gets blamed for everything that goes wrong and gets no credit for anything that goes right. But um, how, how, um, how bad is the situation for them at the moment? How worried are they facing the election? Well, they're worried. Uh, they actually did take advice from people in Ireland at the time. So they, they did go into it with their eyes uh, open. They did believe, however, that they had no choice. And many of them will argue that it was a matter of national importance that there was a solid, uh, stable coalition government formed back in 2010. However, whatever the motivation was in 2010, uh, that has long since departed now in terms of the voter uh, perceptions. And they, they have seats in their mid early 50s. Many people in the world of Westminster will now tell you that they could be lucky to get back with 20 seats in the next parliament. Okay, Mark Hennessy in Birmingham. Thank you. You're listening to the Irish Times.
For the past three years, US President Barack Obama has been determined to keep his country out of the war in Syria, even when the regime of Bashar al-Assad crossed Obama's so-called red line and used chemical weapons against its own people. Now, however, a US-led coalition is carrying out airstrikes inside Syria against fighters from a number of groups described as Islamic extremists. I'm joined now by Simon Carswell, our Washington correspondent. Simon, the Barack Obama who spoke last week in strident tones of the UN General Assembly over the need for a military response to the rise of Islamic State in Syria and Iraq, he seemed a different man to the one who publicly wavered last year at a time when everybody thought a US intervention in Syria was imminent. Um, What's changed? Well, he certainly changed. It's, there's no doubt about even the change in rhetoric, the change in tone, and the response to this, what they see as this emerging threat from Islamic, Islamic State in Syria and northern Iraq. And this is a president that was elected and campaigned in both uh, presidential election campaigns on an anti-war stance. His whole aim was to get the U.S. off a perpetual war footing, to withdraw from very unpopular wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and really to retrench from uh, the world. It's um, been described as this geopolitical taper that he's involved in. He wants to pull back. But what's happened this, sum- this past summer is that he and the U.S. have become quite alarmed at the rapid rise and advance of Islamic State uh, in taking over large swathes of Syria and northern Iraq. I think the turning point was very much the uh, loss of Mosul, the second largest city in Iraq. Uh, when that happened in June, I think it, 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 it brought the matter to a head and the U.S. said, we really need to do something about this. That then combined with over the, over the summer and in August with the beheading of the two American journalists, Jim Foley and Stephen Sotloff, that really turned public opinion. And suddenly you had an American public who were very reluctant to see any kind of involvement in any new conflict change their minds and say, well, this is obviously a direct threat. We need to do something about this. Now, while the same number of uh, uh, Amer- percentage of the American public who were for action, an equal number were also against sending in any combat troops, boots on the ground, who would be drawn into a another protracted um, conflict. But you've seen a very interesting pivot from Obama here. What he's done is, two months ago, he was saying, we need to repeal this congressional authorization that George W. Bush got to go to war in Iraq in 2003. He said, and now he's saying, well, he's using that to um, step up these airstrikes uh, that the U.S. have launched against ISIS, against Islamic State in Iraq and now in Syria. Uh, last week saw the first airstrikes inside Syria and uh, Barack Obama and the U.S.'s first involvement in, as you said, a conflict that the U.S. didn't want to get involved in. And again, this is a threat they see to the U.S. homeland. They see they need to act now. And also the fact that there's a large number of foreign fighters who could potentially pose a threat to the United States and the fear of another terrorist attack at home. That's what's prompted this major change. Right. And the, the picture on the ground, Simon, in Syria in particular, it's, it's, it's fairly complicated because initially there was talk of Islamic State and then as soon as the US carried out its first airstrikes inside Syria, it became clear that they were they were hitting not just uh, Islamic State but the longer established Nusra Front, uh, members of a new group that the, the White House identified as the Khorasan Group and so on. Um, so it's a very complicated picture on the battlefield and the strategy seems to be to to attack the, the Islamic extremists, as they call them, and to try to replace them with a, a moderate, uh, retrained, re-equipped, more moderate opposition. Do you think the strategy is clear and do you think that the American public understand the strategy? 
I think they're getting to understand it. I think there's some mixed messages going on. While the Obama administration wants to strike at terrorists who are potentially going to pose a threat and militants who are going to pose a threat to the U.S. at home, they also don't want to uh, uh, to strengthen the hand of Bashar al-Assad, the uh, Syrian president. They've made it clear that they want Bashar al-Assad gone, yet here they are attacking his opponents. Um, and also you have, uh, as part of the strategy to degrade and ultimately destroy uh, Islamic State, the U.S. have said, well, we're going to arm moderate Syrian rebels, modern uh, Syrian uh, opposition fighters. Uh, and that's a very tricky situation because just two months ago, Obama was dismissing these people as farmers and really people who, uh, they, they, they weren't they didn't have the capacity to fight against Bashar al-Assad. But now, again, another reversal. Uh, the U.S. has committed itself to arm and train these rebels um, with the assistance of Saudi Arabia. So you'll see American military uh, personnel going into Saudi Arabia and training these people. And that has got the overwhelming support of Congress. You saw uh, Senate and the House of Representatives vote pretty, pretty strongly, pretty overwhelmingly for that action. So I think it's complicated, and it shows just how, how complex the situation and the picture is in Syria. But I think the U.S., people, American people, are understanding uh, the complexities around this. I think it was a surprise that the Corson Group was mentioned. It was signposted just before the airstrikes began. Is this, uh, these veterans of Pakistan and veterans of, of Afghanistan who had regrouped into a small group uh, in um, Syria and that they, the U.S. took advantage of striking them. I think there was uh, people weren't sure what that was about initially, and maybe there's a suggestion now that perhaps the U.S. overplayed the threat that those, that group has posed to the U.S., but U.S. has taken advantage of the fact that they're striking in Syria to, to, to take out some of these uh, these militants as well as Islamic State and al-Nusra. And of course, Simon, a, a remarkable consequence of all this is that the U.S. The US now finds itself pretty much in... Um, uh, not in, in in alliance or coalition, but on the same side as um, the Assad regime, as Iran, as uh, Hezbollah in in um, Lebanon, which it designates a terrorist group. They're all now on the same side, if you like, against Islamic State. Is that a cause for much reflection or discomfort in the, in the U.S.? Well, I think it's posed the question is, my enemy's enemy, my friend, and in this case, it's not. Uh, the Obama administration has made it clear that they don't see Iran as being uh, an ally in this fight, or indeed Assad. It's seen very much as this is a fight that uh, we need to fight with um, Arab Sunni nations that we see as part of the alliance, and the likes of Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the likes of UAE. So, it's very important, again, this is part of the Obama administration's strategy, is not to go it alone, not to take unilateral action. And part of Obama's view that, you know, there cannot be a solution imposed on this region of the Middle East by the U.S. alone. It needs uh, allies in the region. It needs support in the region. And also, if Obama is going to have to go with this no-boots-on-the-ground strategy, he's going to need to rely on local um, local fighters uh, from these nations, from these Arab countries, to provide the, the manpower to fight this war that he's unwilling to put American uh, feet on the ground to, do, to, to, to combat, to fight the Islamic State. So I think that if you're looking at internally in some of the domestic debate that's going on here, a lot of the Republicans are coming out saying, well, actually, we need to go further than this, than these airstrikes. Well, this, this, this Islamic State, this group cannot be defeated unless we put boots on the ground. There's a very uh, high-profile intervention made by John Boehner, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, the Republican leader, where he said that ground troops are going to be needed to beat this group. Um, he's saying that it's going to take more than strikes to drive them out of there. So again, there's a view that America maybe needs to go further among certain uh, political opponents here in the U.S. 
And how solid, Simon, is the public support for the either airstrikes to date and um, how likely would the public be to stay on board should the Americans find it necessary to uh, to upscale their involvement, including possibly putting boots on the ground? Well, I think there's a reluctance uh, amongst the American public for boots on the ground. They don't want to see more troops being sent over, more troops going into combat. Um, we have, there's about 1,600 American troops now have been deployed to Iraq to, uh, that are involved in this latest battle. But they're not. Uh, they're involved in an advisory role working with the Iraqi forces and with the Kurdish forces in fighting Islamic State. Um, there's... there's quite a lot of public support for the airstrikes, but going no further than that. Um, one of the issues that's, raised, that, that's been raised in the last couple of days is something of a post-mortem as to, well, how come this uh, group came out of nowhere? Why, didn't we, why weren't we aware of, of the threat that this, had posed, uh, this group had posed to the United States? And over the weekend, you had President Obama in um, a 60 Minutes interview with CBS in 60 Minutes saying, yes, we uh, overestimated the ability and the will of our allies, uh, the Iraqi army, to fight and really acknowledged um, that they misjudged the rise of the Islamic State. Uh, there's a lot of debate again, is this a failure of U.S. intelligence? Um, Obama was asked about Jim Clapper's comments assistant director of national intelligence, and he had acknowledged that they'd underestimated what had been taking place. There was an interesting interview last month with James Clapper where he said that he, he likened the mistake in evaluating the fighters from Islamic State to what they did in Vietnam, which will make a lot of people uneasy. Uh, they underestimated the Viet Cong, they underestimated the North Vietnamese in that conflict, and overestimated the ability of the South Vietnamese to challenge uh, those forces. So again, the parallels being drawn with what happened with Vietnam. And if you go back as well, in January, you had Obama describing um, Islamic State as a junior varsity basketball team, comparing them to the, uh, what would be the U.S. as professional basketballers. So he had this view that this, this, this was a group that posed no threat. And then eight months later, he's, uh, he, he's taking them so seriously as to launch airstrikes and get involved in Syria's three-year civil war. Simon Carswell in Washington, thank you. Well, that's it from this week's edition of Worldview. From producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer Gary White, and from me, Chris Dooley, thank you for listening. Goodbye.